This Sunday School lesson with Dr. Joseph A. Piper is a question and answer period moderated by Mr. Terry Miller. This conference that we've had this weekend and the blessing of coming this day to praise our Lord, to hear him renew his covenant with us. And Father, we pray that those blessings that were enumerated would indeed be realized by us. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, it's a time for questions and answers. Uh, you, you can either write them down on cards or if we have a microphone if you want to ask them out loud. Well, uh, yes, Sam. During the uh, conference, I had asked one about impeccability and peccability, and there was a kind of a purpose behind it. But I don't know if this is more of a statement, and hopefully, correction if I'm if I'm off base. But impeccability. Uh, you had mentioned during the the conference that Jesus was incapable of sinning, which I totally agree with. Uh, that's impeccability. So the other side is peccability, where people will advocate that Jesus could have sinned. And I guess kind of what my line of thinking was and was hoping to hear was that our salvation would be in danger if peccability was true, if Jesus could have sinned. Because let's say a million years from now, Jesus sins. We rely on his righteousness alone. And if he's capable of sinning a million years from now, we're, we're out of hope and we're, we're finished. So just whatever comments you have. That's not really an issue because he's only in his state of humiliation for 33 years. So it's only, the two terms only apply to his state on earth. That now he's the exalted. So he even, nobody says now that he's peccable. He's the glorified God man at the right hand of the Father. But it's true, hypothetically, that uh, if he could have sinned, the whole uh, covenant arrangement could have have fallen, but that's part of the reason why he couldn't. Yeah, good. Or if he wasn't raised from the dead. <laughs> that's right. Many other things. Why do we keep this? Whoops, he gave you the microphone oh, over here. You can go. I'm sorry, go ahead. Let's see, is this, is this picking me up? Okay, great. Yeah. He's not on yet. Okay, all right. I did have a question about the Sabbath. So as far as Sabbath keeping goes, what's the relationship between our keeping the Sabbath on the Lord's Day every week and that spiritual Sabbath or that eternal rest that we will have in heaven and God's kingdom? The reason I ask this is because a lot of Christians who uh, don't advocate for weekly Sabbath keeping tend to interpret those scriptures as only pertaining to our eternal rest with God in heaven. Right. So uh, there's, very, as I said, from Genesis 2... Uh, there's a very close relationship. Both the seventh-day Sabbath and the first-day Sabbath are signs and guarantors of our eternal Sabbath rest. God's pointed the Sabbath to show us that he has uh, prepared this for us. In fact, that's one of the reasons the day is left open-ended, where other six days are linked to the next day. The Sabbath is the end of the week, but it's also open-ended because it is a promise. Um, 
if we think we're going to delight in heaven and we don't delight in spending one day a week with the Lord and his people, then we've deceived ourselves. We will not delight in heaven. Uh, the Sabbath in some of the hymns point, point this out, really is a foretaste. Uh, it's kind of a weekly uh, appetizer for the great marriage feast of the Lamb. So yeah, but, but plus the language is, you know, in Scripture is very clear. Uh, the fourth commandment um, uh, deals with things that will not be issues in heaven. It's just a way to, uh, to avo- try to avoid God's clear command. We have one from Jim. Back to what Sam was saying. Uh, God is the same today, tomorrow, and forever. He never change. Right. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Why do we keep the Sabbath on Sunday instead of Saturday? All right. Very good. Thank you. I promise you for that question. So, um, the Hebrews 4 passage that we read, and it's not just the New King James, uh, almost all of the translations miss what is being said there. The older writers understood it, um, uh, like John Owen. Uh, but um, if you look at verses 9 and 10, verse 9 shows us that there, that there continues a Sabbath commandment. So... Uh, when your Bible says there remains a rest uh, for the people of God, uh, that is not the word for rest that the writer uses throughout this entire section. He introduces a word here that is only used here in the New Testament. And it's a verbal form, uh, kept Sabbath. There remains a Sabbath keeping for the people of God. We can go back to the Greek translation of the Hebrew, which is called the Septuagint. And this is the word that's used. So, for example, in Exodus 16, when God told the people not to pick up uh, manna on the seventh day because it is a Sabbath, and that is the Greek word that is used. And so there's clearly here the introduction that for the new covenant people, and that's the technical word, people of God, again, is a word for the covenant people for the church. And so he's declaring in verse 9 that the requirement of a Sabbath keeping is still for the people of God. Now, verse 10 is also uh, greatly misunderstood. Now, you will notice that it begins with the word for. And what is that, why is that word there? What does the word foretell us? When you read scripture, pay attention to the grammar. <laughs> it's very logical. So why does there remain a Sabbath keeping for the people of God? That's what four answers, right? Because the one who's entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Now, this is often interpreted, in fact, the NIV, I mean, really just expands on this in its own paraphrastic way, that uh, 
that as God entered his rest on the Sabbath, so the sinner rests from his sin. Now, you, I trust you can see the impropriety of, uh, of comparing a sinner resting from sin to God resting from uh, his work of creation. But if we'll just forget a bit about, about preconceived notions, the rest here is not the sinner entering to God's rest. It is the sinner, it's Christ entering his rest. He rested from his works as God did from his. So God rested from his works on the seventh day. What day did Christ rest from his works? On the first day. And that was the day of resurrection. That was the declaration that now it was all completed and, and perfect in terms of his work on earth. So there is the transition. Then you go to... Well, I haven't finished. I mean, is, I'm sorry. I was just wanted to interrupt you and say, is that when you were speaking, when you were earlier, you said he had rested from creation and then he had rested from redemption. Yes. Yes. Thank you. So what we see then is, is that Christ, through the apostles, then appointed a change of day. This is clear in the first place uh, by inference that there were many resurrection appearances in the 40 days between Christ's resurrection and ascension. But all of them, we don't know about the eating the fish on the beach. I, I don't think we know about that one. But all the others took place on the first day of the week. But John calls it the eighth day. And if you go back and look at the festivals, the eighth day was the first day of the week. And the, the, the high festival was the Feast of Tabernacles. And the eighth day, of that, and that's the feast that pointed most powerfully to Christ. And the eighth day was the first day of the week. It was the last day of that Old Testament feast, thus the first day of our weekly uh, feast in the Lord. So then we find example that the, in the New Testament, the church only met on the first day of the week. And so we find the Apostle Paul in Troas meeting on the first day of the week. John, then on uh, uh, the Isle of Patmos, has this vision on the Lord's day. And that word Lord's it's a very peculiar Greek word. It is only used one other time in the New Testament, and it's for the Lord's Supper. So the Lord's Supper is not simply a supper that belongs to the Lord. It's something that's been appointed by the Lord for worship. And so uh, we learn from these things, and the church has historically understood this. I mean, the Seventh-day Adventists say that Constantine invented uh, uh, Sunday worship, but no, you can go back and look at the historical records, and the church was worshiping on the first day of the week. So I, I hope that that uh, it's a very important question and I appreciate your asking that and you want to follow up on that. So Ms. Blessings pointed out that is why we on this day uh, remember Christ as Redeemer. We remember the empty tomb. Um, that's why the catechism when it, and the confession when it speaks of the Sabbath it says from creation 
until the resurrection was the seventh day of the week from the resurrection to the end of the age. It's the first day of the week. Also, I might add to that, <clears throat> if you remember your feast and festivals from Leviticus 23, the feast of the first fruits was the day after the Sabbath, and we all know that Christ was the first fruits. That's right. Yeah, the uh, whole uh, barley offering, uh, there was a special wave offering then after Passover, uh, and that is applied to Christ by the apostles as well in the resurrection. Sam? Uh, you had mentioned the ancient documents, and I just wanted to mention the. there's a document called the Didache. Right. And I don't know if you want to comment anything you on go that, ahead. but if you, if you want to look up that document that, that discusses early Christian believers' uh, daily life actions or whatever, and, of course, the Sabbath. Yeah. It's the Didache. Some of the Jewish Christians actually worshipped uh, on the seventh day as as well as the first day, they did not substitute it. But until the temple was destroyed, you'll recognize from Paul's behavior that God did allow Christians to observe uh, the festivals and other activities. Uh, and so some Jewish Christians, but then that gets to the other part of the question about the day. Those three passages in Paul, Romans 14, uh, Galatians 5, and uh, Colossians 2, uh, about uh, days only have to do with Jewish days. They have nothing to do with a Sabbath day. They're all tied into the Judaizers wanting to impress upon the church. So, it's, for example, in Colossians, he says, you cannot judge anybody else by a day. In other words, you're free. If you want to observe a day in addition uh, to the Sabbath, you may do so, but you may not require it. Uh, but with the destruction of the temple, that permission went away. So some of us know these Messianic Jews and whatever who try to, uh, they should not be doing the things they're doing with the festivals and the observances and the cedars and all of that. No, that was destroyed with the temple. Bill? When Christ is in the tomb, you know, for three days, and it was prophesied that it was going to be three days, is his resting in the tomb on Saturday, significant? Is he continuing to keep that Sabbath mm. day as he's not getting up? Hmm. I've not thought about it that way. Uh, it's primarily the last part of his punishment. Uh, and so that's, you know, that's how our confession interprets he sent it into hell was remaining in the grave for three days. Uh, now, the time is not completely arbitrary because that was prophesied twice, uh, once in Hosea um, and then uh, in Jonah as the type. So if God had in mind other things, um, it, what I've heard is, is that the Sabbath was put, the seventh-day Sabbath was put in the grave. It was buried with Christ. But uh, all of that was the last part of his humiliation. Now, uh, and that's one of the reasons we say he descended to hell. The other is, as Calvin and the Heidelberg interprets it, is that that's a summary statement of his uh, propitiatory death on the cross. I see no reason why it can't even be both of those, both of those things. 
I notice that a lot of Christians don't consider his remaining under the power of death for three days as part of his right. passive obedience. They say because he said it's finished on the cross, that he had finished paying for our sins on the cross. And I notice that's, that's taught prevalently today. Well, it is, but of course, that's the propitiatory part. But death was and burial a part of the punishment of sin as well. Go ahead, Susie. Uh, I was wondering about something. Uh, Jesus told the disciples that he didn't know what day he'd come back, only the Father knew. And he's here and he's in his man's body. And I guess everything he did, he did through his Father's power, maybe. I don't know. But what I'm wondering about, the, the things that he took for me on the cross, I mean, he was beaten, he had the crown of thorns, and he was nailed to the cross, and he suffered and died the way he did. Uh, he knew about all that because he was praying in the garden the night before and suffering terrible on looking forward to that. And so what I'm wondering about, at the point that it grew dark and the Father turned his face away from him, and Jesus cried out and said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I always wonder, did he not know ahead of time about that part? He had told them one time, You're all going to leave me. But that's okay because my father never leaves me because I do always the things that please him. And I wondered if that one thing was hidden from me. He did not know maybe. No, ma'am, he knew. Mm -hmm. So um, part of the glorious mystery of what we call the hypostatic union, that is he was one person with two natures, is that although every act was the act of the person, the human nature in no way had divine attributes. And the divine nature had no human attributes. He did both of those natures in the one person to atone for our sins. So what he's saying is that as, as the mediator in his human nature, that had not been revealed to him. In his divine nature, is new. So the person knew because the person acts out of both natures. But he, what he was trying to emphasize there was is that this is kept a great mystery from mankind which shows the blasphemy of all those who predict Christ is coming in this generation or that generation. But he also, even in his human nature, perfectly understood Scripture. You see, Scripture doesn't reveal the time of the second coming, but Scripture clearly revealed the time of the advent. It was going to be the 70 weeks of Daniel, the destruction of the temple. Um, and if you remember what he does in uh, Luke chapter 24, Two occasions there, with first the two road men on the road to Emmaus, and then with all the eleven, maybe others as well, he opens to them the law, the prophets, the scriptures, and unfolds all about him. Three times during his ministry, he tried to prepare them. He said, the Son of Man is going to go, going to be betrayed, judged, condemned, crucified, and rise again on the third day. So he knew, even in his human nature, because he knew scripture, uh, in his human nature perfectly well. Now, I think a lot dawned on him when he was 12. He'd been studying the scriptures, and now he goes up to Jerusalem. Now, it's interesting. He wasn't simply answering questions. He was asking questions. Now he was probing these religious leaders, and he was coming, and I think this is the full realization in his human nature of what he was about, and that's why he then says to his parents, do you not know I must be about my father's business? So I think you know full well what lay before him uh, in his propitiatory death. On the cross, 
The other part of your question is very important. The human nature is the nature that died and suffered hell. Because it was joined to the divine nature, it then had an infinite and eternal value. And that's why Paul can say in Acts uh, 20, the church was purchased with the blood of God. So the, the blood of, shed in the human nature was the blood of the person, of the God-man. And that's how he accomplished our perfect. But so in his human nature, he actually suffered the reality of hell. And that separation wasn't just an absence. It was the outpouring of God's wrath. But God never in any way would be separate from the divine nature. And it's a mystery. I think she needs the microphone back. But yeah, we all are. We all are, not just you. Could you fully explain hypostatic union? No. <laughs> I was looking at this. No, anointing is used in uh, is baptism, isn't it? We imply it anyway. No, that was a preparation for burial. That's all the word anoint means. Yeah. Yeah. You got more? We've got a good question. Make sure we go to noon. I want to make sure we get to that question. Go ahead, though. A pastoral question, if that's okay. Those are the best. So you had mentioned in your sermon about um, training up children to love the Lord's Day. Could you go into more detail on that? Good. And let's connect that with the other question. What are the things that we do? Oh. All right. Well, that's not it. Here it is. Yeah, we've answered that one. What are practical activities to do on the Sabbath day and then with family to keep the Lord's Day? So... Puts these two together, basically the, the same question as well. So uh, we begin with a commitment that the whole day belongs to the Lord. So one of the questions I'm often asked is, you know, is it part of the day? No, it's a whole day. And how do we measure a whole day? We measure it from midnight to midnight or from six to six. And if we kept the other six days, six to six, if we lived in certain parts of the world, and that would be how time is reckoned. But because we live in a culture that keeps every other day, midnight to midnight, that's our whole day. Um, so the whole day belongs to the Lord, uh, and then it's to be spent in the whole day, is to be spent in the acts of public and private worship and deeds of necessity and mercy. So... Um, in the first place, we should be preparing ourselves uh, for this day. Uh, and the confession mentions get all of your work in order. Uh, don't have stuff hanging over. And don't work late. On, that's that one, right? Don't work late uh, on Saturday. Sometimes, uh, you know, you get involved in a project and you go late. And not only are you late, you don't sleep well because you, you had too much on Saturday. Um, there is uh, a matter of getting all your ducks in order. So uh, 
when I'm talking to families, uh, I'll, I'll remind them that uh, there is, uh, in all of our homes, uh, a shoe fairy. Did you know there's a shoe fam- fairy in your home? In fact, I, I saw evidence of him this morning. Uh, and what the shoe fairy does is that you're ready to go out the door and get in the car and go to church, and suddenly there's this plaintive cry, I can't find my shoe. Now, it's never shoes. I can't find my shoe. Um, and, but you see, if you set your shoes aside on Saturday night and your, your clothes are all ready, the shoe fairy can't touch them. So that's just a practical way of understanding that uh, get all those things done. Get your clothes laid out, shirts pressed, whatever, uh, for the children as well as for the adults. Get a normal night's rest. And we sometimes think that because the Sabbath is a free day, that we can uh, stay up extra late and then sleep in. I bet some of you do that. Uh, But no, it's the most important day of all. And so get a good night's rest so you can get up early enough, young people, uh, then so you can pray and read and um, uh, prepare your heart then for coming to worship God on the Sabbath. Uh, So then we have the, and you're blessed to be in such a church, we have the bookends, of morning and evening worship. And, and God's providence, that not only gives us ways to worship God, but it disciplines us, you see. So we begin the Sabbath preparing for worship. We come home. Uh, we will uh, maybe over the dinner table discuss the sermon. Um, and then we'll be going back to worship. Uh, again, prepared uh, and coming home and Again, enjoying a a quiet evening of wrapping up the Sabbath day. Then um, we may have an extended time of family worship. You know, oftentimes, particularly when you have teenagers, you'll miss times of family worship or they're abbreviated, but we can have an extended time of family worship. Or you can have a time to pray uh, more so or or read that Christian book or New Horizon magazine or whatever. You haven't had time. Uh, during the week to do those kinds of things. Uh, and then Christian fellowship, to have uh, your Christian brothers and sisters into your home uh, and to have visitors into your home. And it's a great way for fellowship, but also for evangelism. In Houston, I don't know if they were still doing it when, when you all were there, but we actually had a program that uh, uh, Gladys Moore Hare, I bet you all knew Gladys Moore when she was Gladys Moore, not Gladys Hare. Um, she named it, but we had a hospitality uh, program, and it was called um, EAU, French for water, but it was entertaining angels unaware. So we had people committed every Lord's Day to take visitors home, and if there are no visitors, then to take another church family home. Um, Our our children loved that when we would have people over on the Sabbath. Um, And uh, so the fellowship is good, either as outreach or as Christian fellowship, and then for service. So for example, some churches will go to a nursing home once a month or go to a park and do evangelism. Uh, actually, it's, I think it's proper for, of course you guys are, are retired, it's not the same way, but for a ruling elder who's busy, he could do one of his pastoral visits either after the evening worship or on Sunday afternoon as part of Christian service, which Christ says that is part of Sabbath keeping. So there's a lot. Right, so with uh, let me back up one other thing because sensitive to particularly the ladies in our midst. 
part of Sabbath preparation is to get as much of your meal preparation done uh, the day before. And of course, now with Instapots and Crock-Pots and all that, it's even much easier uh, than it had been before. Our timer's on the oven so you can come home and the couch flow is fixed. And then our rule has been, and even when I was preaching, I would try to do this, and when the kids were older, they would do it, is that uh, then you know, it was my responsibility or the children's responsibility to clean up after Sunday dinner. Uh, you go now and you have your time uh, and we'll take that off of you. And to do no unnecessary housework on, on that day then. So to help create that time for her as well. Now with our children, uh, that will vary uh, in their ages. Uh, when they're little though is when we have to do less for ourselves and more for them. And so uh, uh, we would read to the children. We kept a box of uh, clothes. They could actually act out a Bible story, particularly when we had other families over. Uh, they enjoyed doing that. So they would go upstairs and uh, they would rehearse the Bible story so they knew it. And then they would come down and do a skit for us acting out the, the Bible story. Uh, we got so many good Christian videos now as well. Uh, and so, again, they can do that. It's also good for older children to read to younger children. It's teaching older children something about service uh, as well. And then to build a Christian, a good library in your home and be encouraging your children. First, you read to them, and then uh, you have age-appropriate books, and you're teaching them as well uh, to read. Um, the Bible games, there are some that are edifying. Now, there's some. I was at one friend's house, and, and they were playing Bible Monopoly. Oh, well, that's interesting. But when I looked at Bible Monopoly, it was simply Monopoly with Bible names. There was nothing instructive about Bible Monopoly. Uh, you know, that's a duck. Well, you know, the name's still a duck, right? If it quacks like a duck, it's a duck. It's a game. It's not an instructive Bible activity. But there are those things available as well. And then, as I said, to get them you know, to go visit a shut-in, uh, that is great for the shut-in. Uh, and they love to have the children, but it's also great for the children. As a young Christian in high school, there was a dear lady in the church, Mrs. Young, and she just latched on to me, and she was very good about visiting shut-ins and poor people, and she'd take me with her. And it was an old black man that first challenged me about the ministry. He just said, son, and we had this idiom in, in the South, you might have it over here as well, I consider Oklahoma to be the South. Uh, he said, son, you're going to make a preacher, and that's, I mean, that's what you're going to grow up and do. And um, so get our kids exposed in that way uh, in, in service as, as well and be joyful about it. And then explain to them when we don't do something that, you know, this is because this is honoring God. And yes, it'd be nice if you could do this. Now, once again, what we're seeing, at least in South Carolina, is there is now a resurgence, particularly within the Christian school and homeschool movements of uh, sports teams. And they're not playing sports. So my grandchildren have participated in basketball, soccer, uh, football, uh, and uh, it's, it's never done on the Sabbath or on a, on a Wednesday as far as I know. So we're thankful that God does uh, also at times provide for our children. Did I cover all the bases on that one? Are there any good books you recommend on keeping the Sabbath? <laughs> Ryan McGraw has, has a good book. <laughs> In my book on the Sabbath, I actually have a, a chapter on uh, our keeping the Sabbath and 
preparing the Sabbath for our children. Now, one of the things that perplexes me, and it's even among Sabbath keepers, and I don't know how to address it, is that the people are sincere about the Sabbath, but the children are kind of given a free reign. And I can't quite distinguish what is the difference. They're outside, um, and they're running about and playing. How's this keeping the Sabbath? Uh, I also have that booklet uh, that I did with uh, Reformation Heritage Books, is the Sabbath for today. And again, I address our children in Sabbath, and that's just about a 34-page booklet. Very good. How does a believer best make use of the ordinary means of grace? So that's a, a word that's bannered about a good bit now, the ordinary means of grace, and we're an ordinary means of grace church. So if you were with us, not with us yesterday, those are primarily the word prayer and sacraments. And as I mentioned, both the larger catechism in how the word is to be read by all, and then in the confession of faith, where it, it refers to the... Um, um, Acts of the Sabbath, uh, both places say that both the private reading and the public reading of Scripture daily are part of God's will for us. As I said in the sermon, providentially, we'll miss those times. We're not superstitious. You know, I, I know Christians. I didn't have my Bible reading this morning. It's going to be a bad day. And that's absurd. No, I, I didn't have my Bible reading, and I really missed it. And uh, just as I, if I don't have time to eat breakfast, I really miss it. Um, uh, and so we want to change our attitude about that. And there'll be times providentially that we're going to, to miss this. But to read the Bible prayerfully, to meditate, on it, to make sure you've got a program of reading uh, in the Bible. So again, often the way Satan uh, kind of trips us up is that you don't know what you're going to do. Now, what am I going to do today? And and time you think about that for a few minutes, you go do something else. Now, have a program that helps discipline you. I use McShane's Bible reading calendar. That's that's a bit ambitious for a, a normal church member. I know some people that, that do it, and it's four columns, but you can divide it in half and do two. Um, or some other way, Ligonier has their daily devotional, but I, I want to say people in the Word. Uh, my wife reads the Bible, and then um, she often reads Matthew Henry. It used to be that she had my sermon notes in her Bible, but Matthew Henry has usurped my <laughs> sermon notes. That's okay. <laughs> um, so get these habits. If you need instruction in that, the pastor can help you um, with Bible reading and daily prayer. Again, I use a prayer uh, record keeper. Uh, what I'm praying for each day. Uh, that's not exhaustive, but again, it helps me to stay disciplined. Uh, as I'm praying, particularly intercessory prayer, for, and that's how I pray for you all, come up on my bi-weekly calendar, and um, uh, I pray for you. Um, but again, all the parts of prayer need to be there. It's part of the Lord's Prayer, and, and the exposition and the shorter and larger catechisms of the Lord's Prayer will help you learn how to pray better. And then under the word, preaching is God's primary means of grace. That's larger catechism. I think it's about 154. Uh, and um, so be careful. And then 157 has a question of how you're to approach the preaching of God's word. The larger catechism is very practical. 
And so uh, it, it deals with uh, beforehand, during, and after. And uh, put those things into practice. Become Because remember, again, in the elements of worship, the conscionable hearing of the word preach, conscionable is a long word to mean careful, uh, diligent, uh, is an act of worship. You're worshiping either well or poorly, depending on how well you listen to a sermon and respond to it, as the Catechism says, with faith, love, meekness, readiness of mind. And if you don't do that, if you're there arguing with the preacher or you're throwing up walls against the preacher, you're actually blaspheming God. You're not, yeah, you're mistreating the preacher and his authority. Listen, when he stands in that pulpit, he is Christ's ambassador and he is speaking, Christ is speaking, and you dare not despise him, despise what he's saying, Unless he says something contrary to Scripture, you are to assent to it. It's a very important concept there um, in our catechism. And if you don't do that, as I say, you're blaspheming God, and you're also not going to profit from the Word. And then the sacraments, which we neglect a great deal. And so uh, if you weren't here, if you look in the larger catechism, how to improve your baptism, that will teach you how to use baptism as a means of grace. And then in the larger catechism, how to behave during the administration of the Lord's Supper and afterwards. And that will teach you how to profit from the sacraments. And then we add, and it says other uh, such things. So Christian conversation, uh, tithing, stewardship, uh, Sabbath keeping, all these other things then are. So means of grace are the means by which Christ communicates to us uh, the benefits of his uh, mediation. I'll uh, try to keep this question quick because I know Julie Blessing has a question. So, Oh, okay. Thanks. Um, uh, in kind of the season of the Protestant Reformation uh, that we're kind of in right now, um, I was going to ask about, I've been hearing about how Thomas Aquinas is becoming popular with uh, Protestant Christian teachers and seminaries and stuff. Um, and one of the things, the phrases I've heard is that, uh, well, the the Rome is, their doctrine is correct about God, but not correct about salvation. Well, that can't be true. So my question is, um, what is wrong with uh, the Church of Rome's doctrine of God and how that relates to how they're wrong about the doctrine of salvation? Hmm. Let me say with respect to Aquinas that that's nothing new. I mean, uh, Calvin uh, was well aware of uh, all of the medieval theologians and uh, Aquinas does, I mean, for example, Aquinas' doctrine of election is every bit like Augustine's or Calvin's. Um, and so we, ha we have to, uh, to be careful um, and not paint with too broad. He just, I mean, Augustine was confused about the role of sacraments in our acceptance with God, uh, and Aquinas was as well. But, he, um, but again, the, the Roman church's doctrine of God not necessarily Aquinas's or Augustine's, it is uh, a God who is not absolutely sovereign. So uh, they will believe in the triune God who created, and they're about as good as most Reformed people on that, that uh, you know, I can drive a semi-truck through that statement, uh, all things. Um, and they would believe that he's unchangeable and, and they would hold to his attributes, but what they really would would be with respect to his sovereignty and his sovereignty in salvation. So they'd be, with their doctrine of, of free will, 
they obviously cannot understand God's sovereignty in salvation. So I think that's the weakness about the doctrine of God. Now, it's also the doctrine of God's tied to the doctrine of Scripture. And they have a very uh, weak view of Scripture in a number of ways. In the first place, uh, they don't accept the, our Hebrew and Greek Scriptures as the authoritative, but they accept the Vulgate, which was translated by um, Jerome, who was a godly man and, and knew the gospel, uh, but made a lot of mistakes in his, in his creation, uh, his translation. Uh, and then uh, they'll accept his, of course, they have liberalism as well, but say traditional Roman Catholics will accept the Bible as God's word, but they have two other editions of authority. And one is there's a secret tradition that's passed on from the apostles through the ages, uh, and they're the repository of that. Uh, and that goes beyond Scripture. And then the Pope can invent certain doctrines as well, uh, such as the Immaculate Conception of Mary, which means she was conceived without sin, or purgatory, uh, or the mediatorial role of Mary. These were all things that were invented by the Roman Catholic Church. So uh, they don't hold a sola scriptura, and um, that also would affect the doctrine of God. And of course, then in the doctrines of salvation, um, they err then com completely. It'd be noon. Is there one more question? Uh, Paul has one. Uh, we know that uh, God is the creator and he knows all things from the beginning. He created paradise, the Garden of Eden. He created Adam and Eve, and he knew that they would disobey. When he created them, and he would cast them out of the garden. Your comments on that. Good. It was all a plan. <laughs> um, God intended, so he didn't, he didn't just know, you didn't understand this, God intended that Adam and Eve fall. So, we, your general Christian would say, you know, God knew and permitted. That's not what we, God has a permissive aspect to his decree, but what it is, he's ordained this, he's going to permit sinners to do it because he's ordained it. He didn't instigate, he wasn't the tempter, but it was his will, because he was never going to have a people for himself through a man. It was from eternity his will, that's why Christ was crucified before the foundation of the earth. The whole scheme of redemption is part of the whole. Um, and garden's part of that. So the garden was God's sanctuary. Adam was a prophet, priest, and king in God's sanctuary. Cultivating the garden wasn't just a farming project. It was a priestly project. Uh, when God banished them from the garden, the whole purpose of that rest of the Bible is the restoration. And so you see it unfolding. So first, uh, there is a tent. Then there is a land. Then there is a temple. And you know that uh, John says in John 1.14, the word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us, and that he is our temple. And we are stones, living stones. And create in it. So, the whole, so what do you get in the end of Revelation? You get in garden language. And we're all headed back to uh, uh, even something better. 
than uh, that paradise. Well, if there aren't any more questions, let's close in prayer. And please, uh, if you haven't spoken to Dr. Piper, avail yourself to give him a handshake or a hug or a holy kiss, whatever he desires. <laughs> let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we have been here and worship you this day. We thank you for what we have heard and what we have learned this day, Father. Draw us closer to yourself that we might be fervent in our love for you and for our neighbor. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.